So <clears throat> this morning, as we, uh, as we have been spending time in God's word, uh, as we've come through the Gospel of John, more specifically the first chapter in the Gospel of John uh, so far, we're turning the page in our Bibles to chapter 2. And so this morning as we do that, I want to encourage you, you can certainly open your, your Bible to chapter 2 because we're going to read some verses there in a few moments and I'll invite us to turn to the, those verses. But, but as we do, I, I want to encourage you because something different is going to happen now. We've been kind of looking at the, the birth of Jesus, Jesus' arrival here on this earth, and, and now we're going to begin to look at his earthly ministry. We're going to look to see what Jesus did with his disciples, the things that, that he accomplished, the, the words that he taught and proclaimed, the, the, the things that God did in and through Jesus' life. And it starts here at a, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It begins as Jesus heads out to do more of what he was called to do by his father, as he spends time with people, as he invests in people's lives, and as he walks with his disciples. This year we've been looking at the Gospel of John because we want to understand more about what does it mean to believe? What, what does it mean to put our faith in something? Now, the reality is whether you believe in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible or not, is, is almost like a, a more specific point. But more broadly speaking, this idea of belief is a reality for all of us. Because behind every action that we take in this world, whether we're a religious person or not, there is a belief that we have about that action. The reason why we take that action is because we believe it will, it will result in an outcome. You know, I, I, I wear a sweater vest uh, in, in the morning because I believe it will look good. I apparently didn't think about how it be- believe uh, how hot it would be up here. But, 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 it's, but that's besides the point. Every action results in, or every belief results in an action, right? We live out our belief. So, so we've been really wanting to explore what that means as, as a, a church family. And, and so uh, we've, we've come to the Gospel of John to explore that. But in, in addition to that, it's not just that we want to know what belief is, but we believe that the Gospel of John has something to say about belief, right? It's, it's been uh, referred to as the Gospel of belief by some scholars. It's been, been referred to as this gospel where, where the gospel writer John is all focused on what does it be- mean to believe in, and, and what does our belief result in, this, this new life in Jesus Christ. And so we've been talking about and discussing that believing in something is more than just having this set of ideals that we believe be true in our mind, but it's living our lives in response to those beliefs, right? We talked that as Christians, we live our lives with a direction upward, we realize that there's a relationship we have with the God who created us. And so we look upward at him. We, we come to know who God is. We, we want to understand who the creator is and, and how he created us. And so as we look upward, we also have this opportunity to, to look inward, to understand who we are as his created children, to, to understand and to wrestle with the fact that, that, that we have maybe not always walked faithfully with God, but have walked away from him. And so we have to wrestle with that thing called sin. And as we wrestle with that thing called sin and, and look upward, we realize that we have a God who is doing the work of transforming us. And so we, we realize that we are this new creation, that, that God is transforming us in the image of his own son. And that because we've been, uh, as we look inward, we realize we're being transformed in the image of his own son. We realize that we have this third relationship living outward. Because if we're creating the image of Jesus, if we're, if we're being shaped and formed to be like Jesus, then we also live our lives like Jesus. 
who lived his life, his life in an outward direction, caring for the people around him, being concerned for this bride and groom at their wedding, walking with his disciples, pouring into the lives of others. We too have a calling on our lives, just as Jesus had a calling from the Father. We too, as God's people, are not meant to sit back and just receive the blessings of God, and that's the end of the story. No, the end of the story is when we pour out the love that God has poured into our lives until Jesus returns. And so this morning, as we look at John chapter 2, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind, that, that, we, are, that we are a people being shaped in the image of God through Jesus Christ. We live our lives upward, inward, and outward, and it's all for a reason. It's all for a purpose. So this morning, as we turn to John chapter 2, I think we're going to understand more of that upward relationship. We're going to understand more about who Jesus is, because as he performs these miracles, they're more than just the, the, the flash and the bang, the beauty and the, the awe, the, the glitz and the glam of these miracles. He's telling us something about himself. He's telling his people something that's going on. He's proclaiming that something new is going on in his arrival on the scene. So if you will, turn to John chapter 2 because I'm going to read for us the first 12 verses of, of that chapter and challenge us to consider who Jesus is. Not just this man who can do these miraculous, amazing things, but he's telling us something about himself in these miracles, in these signs, as John refers to them in his gospel. So we're going to turn to John chapter 2. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. It's the fourth gospel, we're told. And we're going to turn to the second chapter, and I'll pick up reading in verse 1. Hear what John tells us and records for us in John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum which, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we trust that your word gives life. That your word nourishes our soul, quenches our thirst for you and truth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would quench our thirst this morning. Nourish the hunger of our souls. Feed us from your word. And may we be receptive to your word. May we be receptive to, to your truth, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read that story, it really feels like a story, right? Just kind of accounting these details of what happened that day in Cana. But let me give you a little bit of a background to the, to the story. 
This is now the third day since, since Jesus' interaction with Nathaniel. You may remember Nathaniel. Nathaniel was that man who Philip went and found and, and said, hey, we found the Messiah. We found the one we've been waiting for. Now, Nathaniel had been sitting underneath the fig tree. He gets up, he walks to Jesus, and, and as he's approaching, Jesus says, oh, behold, the, the, the Israelite in whom there is no, nothing false, right? And Nathaniel goes, how do you know me, right? How, how would you know that? And Jesus says, because I saw you before, you before Philip came to you when you're sitting underneath the fig tree. Now, for Nathaniel, that was a miraculous moment. And Nathaniel's response was one of belief. It's actually this moment where he says, you are the Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. I, in a sense, he's saying, I believe in you, and I'm going to follow you. So, so coming out of that story, we step into this story, this, this passage in, in in uh, John chapter 2, where, where we're left with this impression that of Jesus' words just a few verses before where he says, Nathaniel, if you're impressed by this, you'll see far greater things as you follow me, as you come with me, right? And so we pick up here in verse 1 of our passage. On the third day, there was a, a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples, now, the text seems to imply that, that really the invitation was to, meet, to marry Jesus' mother and that Jesus and his disciples are more of like a plus one or plus however many there are at that point, plus five, I think, maybe. But, but I don't know that that was really much of a big deal, right? It says Mary was, uh, was at the wedding and Jesus also, kind of like as an, almost like as an afterthought or an additional add-in. Now, now, I know that when Tar and I planned our wedding, I wasn't as involved in the wedding plans, but I was, I was, there. I was there for cake testing and, and the, the, the testing the appetizers. But, but a lot of the details she was, she was kind of taking the reins with and she was in charge of. And, and I just wonder if someone had shown up a few days before our wedding and said, hey, do you mind if I bring these five people with me? Um, that might create a little bit of panic. But our text doesn't really communicate to us that they were that concerned about the addition of these other guests, if that's even an addition. They, they don't seem caught off guard by, the, by these late additions to the guest list to this wedding in Cana. No, something else actually gets them anxious, and, and we're going to get to that in a few moments a little later on in the, in the passage. See, in those days, weddings were big celebrations. They, they, they could last for a week at a time even. They, they were, yeah, they were a big deal, right? Lots of details to be taken care of, lots, lots of things to, to be referred to. I remember for our wedding, it was a rehearsal, and the rehearsal done the night before, the wedding the next day, and the reception. And that was enough for me. I was exhausted. I was ready to go on the honeymoon after that, right? I mean, it's a, it's a good time, but, but that's enough, not a week, right? So, so for them, though, it, a wedding was a different thing. So even that, as we come into the story, we need to adjust our expectations a little bit as we think about what's going on in our passage, that maybe weddings as we know them were a little bit different back then. And here, we're, we're, it's clear that, that there are some other things going on here. I, 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 could, I, I certainly could uh, uh, relate to this idea of having a great time with many people, but only in a relaxed setting. I know for our family, we would gather for a long weekend. We'd go camping out in eastern Connecticut, and we'd have like four or five campsites in a row where we'd all be sitting together, uh, or in, uh, camping together, sorry, and, and we'd spend our days fishing, hiking, you know, swimming. And at night, we'd play card games until all hours of the night, wake up the next day and do it all over again for those three or four days. What a great time. It was very relaxing. But I don't know that that was true of weddings back then. 
See, there's such a thing back in Jesus' time where, where there was a shame culture, where you kind of had to, I mean, it's not unheard of, it's not hard for us to understand, but you kind of lived up to the expectation uh, that, of kind of tradition, right? This is how we do things. You got to do the wedding just the way you're told to do it. This is how things happen. And, and part of those, or one of those traditions was that the, the groom was responsible for the wedding. Now, I'm sure for every father of the bride in the room, you're thinking, yeah, that's the way it should be, right? I shouldn't have to pay for that. The groom should pay for it. But back then, the groom was responsible financially for being a great host. In, in fact, the, the family of the bride could actually sue the groom if he didn't do a good enough job, like if, if, if disaster happened, right? That's not, we're not going to allow that to happen again. But uh, on behalf of all grooms, I should say we won't let that happen again. But the, the reality is there was a certain expectation of the groom to be a good host, to be hospitable, to be generous in this week-long celebration of a wedding. And, and so when we come to our passage and, and we see what's happening here in, in, with the wine running out, we realize, man, one of the worst possible things to happen at the wedding happens. Right? Take, take a, a little bit of a, a, pay attention to verses three and four with me for a minute. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. <laughs> I, I've got to giggle because like on the, on the surface, I don't have to giggle, by the way. That's not very manly. I had to laugh a little bit. <laughs> it was manlier thing. <laughs> Chuckle. Uh, this seems like such a funny interaction between a mother and her son, right? I mean, it, it seems like a funny, like you could imagine a mom saying, hey, the wine ran out. Go do something about it. Right? Like, come on, I'm your mother, I'm telling you, go do this, right? And then, and then for the son, he says, woman, what, is, what does that have to do with me? Mom, what does that have to do with me? I, what? You know, like, so you can almost see this interaction happening with any mother and her son. But, there's, but, but again, pay, pay a little bit closer attention because I think that what's happening on the surface, yeah, it's a very human interaction, but there's more going on here. Right? Like when, like, for example, when he says woman, that doesn't sound very respectful of, of our Savior to be referring to his mother as woman. Like, woman, what does that have to do with me? I, I don't think that's what's being communicated when he says woman, right? Because later on in this very same book, when he's hanging on the cross, he turns to John and he says, John, this is now your mother. And he turns to Mary and says, woman, this is now your son. There's an intimacy in that. So, so even, even kind of in thinking like, man, this sounds like a funny interaction between a mother and a son, I think we need to draw a little bit closer to the text, really ask the question, what's being communicated? What's the truth? What's, what's the reality be behind the surface of what we're seeing here going on? And I don't believe that Jesus is being def defiant with his mother when he says, woman, it's not my time. My hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with me? You see, twice more in the Gospel of John, we're told of a story where Jesus' hour had not yet come. You almost get the sense that there's this building anticipation for something that's going to happen down the road. Now, we all know that if we've read through the Gospel of John. We know kind of the ending of the story. But as you're walking through the life of Jesus and you hear that his hour had not yet come, you kind of think, okay, something's coming, something's coming, something's coming. And then in chapter 12, something changes. 
In chapter 12, we, we read the story of, of the uh, triumphal entry. You know, the, the, the passage that we celebrate on Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey the, 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 to kick off the Passion Week, the week leading up to his crucifixion, the week of Passover. And in chapter 12, we're, we're, we read not just that his hour has not yet come. We read, my hour, uh, sorry, it changes from my hour has not yet come to the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You're starting to get a picture of what that hour is, that, that all of Jesus' life is building toward this moment where he is to be glorified, right? And then again in chapter 17, we read these words in Jesus' prayer for his disciples in the church. He says this in, in John chapter 17. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, the hour that Jesus has come for, the hour that his ministry would build toward, is this moment where he would be glorified, but that glorification is a little bit different than what you and I might anticipate. The glorification of Jesus happens on the cross when he's crucified, when he's killed, when he goes to the cross on behalf of my sins, uh, on behalf of your sins, when, when he pays the price that we, that we owe. And, and when he defeats death on the cross, he's glorified. He reveals the, the character, the nature of God in his sacrificial love on our behalf. And so we're told that this is the hour for which Jesus came. So way back to our story, I, I think Jesus is cluing us in. I, I think he's giving us a taste to say, hey, heads up, this is not what I've come here for. Yes, you have problems on a daily basis. You, you, you have uh, an issue where you've run out of wine but that's not really the purpose of my ministry. My purpose is for something far greater. But in the meantime, let me show you what my ministry is. He's cluing us into the fact that his purpose lies in something down the road. The, the hour that will come when he will be glorified on the cross. You see, he came to show the people the glory of the Father. He came to be, uh, to, so that when people saw him, they would see the Father, their Father in heaven. They would see his character, his nature, his, his, his personality, his power, his, his grace, his forgiveness. This is why when, when Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father, he replies like this in John 14, 9. He says, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He's telling Philip, hey, Philip, open your eyes. Look beyond the surface of things a little bit here. You want to see God? Look at me. Well, not me. Look at Jesus, right? He says, I've come to show you the glory of the Father. And when you look at me, when you look at my life, when you look at who I am and the things I've said and the things I've done, you see the Father. See, what we're taught in Scripture is that whatever the the Father says, the Son says. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. Jesus is the glory of the Father. And he wants us to see that. He wants us to know that. 
And so his ministry will be one where, where, where our eyes are, are heightened to seeing God in him, in Jesus. When we think about the signs, when we think about the fact that there's a reality behind the surface of the sign, that the sign points to a truth, it points to a knowledge of God. This is eternal life, that we would know him, know him truly and intimately and personally, that we would know God. So this morning, as, as, we, as we look at this passage, I think, I think Jesus wants us to pay attention to everything that he says and does and, and understand that we're getting a glimpse of the Father. We're, we're looking at the Father in him. Here at the beginning of his ministry, yeah, Jesus glorifies the Father in his life, death, and resurrection, but before he, he glorifies the Father in his death and resurrection, he glorifies the Father in his life, in his ministry, in the time he spends with his disciples. Consider verses 6, six through 10 in our passage. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. See, Jesus' life matters for us to pay attention to. Because when we look at the life of Jesus, we see the Father. When we look at the life of Jesus, we understand something about the one who created us, who, who redeemed us, and who calls us out as witnesses of his grace and his love and his forgiveness. And so Jesus wants us to pay attention to what's going on in his life. He, he wants to use this circumstance where this groom ran out of wine at his wedding to point to the fact that Jesus offers us something better. We've talked about this before, but there's certain signs that happen in our lives, things that we see that point to a deeper truth. And this is one of those signs. This is the first of Jesus' signs that he points to. It's kind of like this sign that I, I had a, a, uh, received a while back when I was driving in my car, and, and I realized that uh, my fuel was low. Now, when I drive around and I get low fuel, it becomes a game. It's like, how, how long can I go before I actually have to get to the gas station and fill up? It's kind of a fun way to pass the time when you're driving around town. And, and this is actually something that Tara does not like. It makes her anxious. <laughs> like, when she gets below half a tank, she's like, okay, it's time to fill up the gas, right? But for me, it's a fun game. And, and so I pushed the limits on it this time until I had to go out somewhere with, uh, with two of my kids, and we're driving up towards Black Rock Turnpike, and this happens, and I think, I'm not sure I have enough gas to get up the hill to Black Rock Turnpike and get to the gas station. So it wasn't a moment of panic where I had to face the reality of the truth behind this sign was that if I don't get to a gas station, I'm going to be walking. My kids are going to be walking until we can get to a gas station, Right. The reality is that if I just look at these bright lights on the dashboard and think, oh, that's pretty, that's kind of fun, or, or I did it, I won the game, then I'm missing out on the, the reality of the truth behind the sign, that, that I need to get to a gas station right away, that if I don't, I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to have to explain myself to Tara why I had to walk with, with two of our kids to, uh, down a busy street to a gas station. 
But I think that's also true for us when it comes to the signs that Jesus performs for his people. In his life and ministry, beyond the glitz and the glam of the miracles he performs, beyond the flashiness and the awe and the power of the things he accomplishes, there is a truth that Jesus wants us to notice, to pay attention to, to embrace, to understand. There, there's a truth that we need to consider in Jesus' signs that he performs, even here in turning the water into wine. Right? I mean, for the bride and the groom, they're in awe of the fact that now they've got wine, they're good, they don't have to be afraid of being ashamed. You know, there's this, there's this immediate circumstance that's been addressed. But it will be a shame if they walk away from their wedding not noticing the truth behind the sign that Jesus performs of turning water into wine. Right? It's kind of like what Clayton was saying when he would throw these wine parties. Hey, free wine, come on in. Did you know that Jesus also turned water into wine? There's something we want to communicate behind the surface of what we're offering here, right? And the truth of what we want to offer here is that Jesus, Jesus is something new that is far greater and far better than anything that we have ever known. See, in our passage, Jesus instructs the servants to fill up six stone water pots. And these stone water pots were used for the Jewish custom, the Jewish rites of purification. He tells them, fill, draw, take. Very simple orders. Fill the pots up, draw some water from it, take it to the head waiter. Nothing major for us as people, right? Simple instructions, simple things for us to do, easy enough for us to obey. So how does something so amazing come from something so simple? See, the reality is our role in that relationship is not that difficult. As Mary says in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. See, our role is to trust. Our, 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 our responsibility in the relationship with Jesus is one to, to trust him through obedience. To say, okay, Jesus, you're telling me to take or to fill, to take, uh, sorry, to fill, to draw, and to take. It's something simple enough for me to do. And the miraculous happens in Jesus' actions in the story, right? Our role in the relationship with Jesus is to simply trust him and to trust him, to believe in him through the actions of obedience. And so as we look more closely at the sign, we also understand something about Jesus' role in our relationship with him. See, I think Jesus provides a new way He's taking the old way, the old order, the, the water, and creating something new in this wine. He, he's signaling to us that the old is gone, the new has come. See, like Adam and Eve, we've each chosen our own path. We've each chosen to, to go our own way, to kind of walk in, in whatever way we would choose. We do, we do whatever is right in our own eyes, and, and we learn that this oftentimes, always, ultimately, ends poorly. And so we're kind of left to ask the question, how do we break this cycle of sin? How, how, do, we, how do we achieve this purification of our own souls, of, of the depth of our being, uh, apart from Jesus? So I, I think about this. I think, ah, oh, I try so hard, but it never seems to be enough. I, I try to, to do better, to obey more, to, to be more obedient, but it's never seeming enough. I, I always mess up. I, I, I can't think of a night where I, 
where as I thought back on my day, there wasn't something that I was disappointed with myself about, that I ever lived a, a perfect day. So I got to think, what can, what can undo all this sin and evil and wrong in my life? And, and really, no amount of water can really purify that. Thinking that water can really wash away my sin is like a teenage boy who sprays himself with the Axe body spray and thinks that he's clean, right? <laughs> who hasn't been on a youth retreat or hung out with a teenage boy and thought, oh, I know which cabin that is, right? <laughs> See, Old Testament rituals and customs, they don't really wash us clean. Water doesn't actually keep us, uh, keep us cleansed and clean. You may be able to clean up with water, but the funny thing about dirt and grime is it just comes back, right? And so it is with our soul, with our sin. It's like that song that, that, we, that we sing from time to time. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's something significant about the fact that, 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 that we need something new to truly cleanse us to the very core of our being and make us pure and clean. These water pots were meant for purification, and, and purification was, was an important part of Old Testament Israelite life, lifestyles. They would cleanse themselves before going to worship, going to the temple, going to make sacrifice. This water cleansing was an important part of their time and their, their drawing near to God and worship. These six water pots represent then the old order of Jewish ways. The, the, the ways that, that, that people found comfort in Jewish law and custom and tradition, that, that, that if they did these things, if they, if they washed in this way, if they, if they refrained from touching these things, that they would be good enough to draw near to God. And I think what's happening here is Jesus is laying down the groundwork for Paul to say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember, this is actually a passage I'm sure a number of us will recognize. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, the deeper truth, the reality behind the glitz and the glam of the sign that, John, that Jesus is showing us here in John chapter 2 is that the old way of trying to scrub our hearts clean through through obedience and through obeying the law and, and living out the customs and traditions of, of the religious life, that, that's all gone. That's done away with. But the new has come. In fact, the better has come. Most people serve the good wine first, but you've waited till now. Well, most people would have thought that the, the, the good is in the Old Testament, but the better is in Christ, who fulfills the Old Testament law who fulfills it in his own life, death and resurrection, so that we can bear the, the, the gifts and the blessing of his righteousness given to us. So the master of the feast tells the groom that everyone serves the good wine first, but in our story, the wine that Jesus is now serving is the better wine. The serving of his own life. The bringing of this new covenant Right? I mean, we, we know that in the Old Testament, God created these covenant, uh, the covenants with Israel, with the people of God. But this new covenant in Jesus, well, that's the better wine, right? When, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, sometimes we read some of the, the words from Scripture that when Jesus holds up the cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant given in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. 
He's saying the shedding of my blood is this new covenant. This is the better wine. We've saved it for last. So I want to encourage us this morning to look upward with me at God and see that, that, that his son is so much better than trying to earn our, 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 our forgiveness, our righteousness before God in our own efforts. That, that all we can do is receive the better wine through Jesus Christ. Taste and see that Jesus is the better wine because he's the, the free gift of God's love and grace and forgiveness. And so not only is Jesus better in quality just as the wine served by Jesus was better in quality, but Jesus is better because of the abundance of that love, because of the abundance of that wine that Jesus offers us. The six water pots that, that are filled to the brim were about 150 gallons of excellent wine, more than enough, Ted, more than enough than they would ever need for those next few days. We're told that it's possible that it's around 2,400 servings of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's an abundant, lavish amount of wine that Jesus provides for this wedding party. See, I think what, we're, what, we, what we see, the truth behind the surface of this sign is that the, the new life that Jesus offers us is not just better in taste. It's better in amount. That God doesn't give us a little taste of his love and his grace and forgiveness, but he lavishly pours out his love and grace and forgiveness for his people. I'm just going to, I didn't put the, these words up on the screen, but let me uh, read for you a few verses from Luke 15. You, you may remember the story of the prodigal son. And in that story, we're told of a young man who goes away and spends all of his father's inheritance. In fact, he asked for his father's inheritance while his father's still alive. Pretty offensive, it feels like, right? But he goes and spends that lavishly. Like, he, he spends it on, on parties and, and whatnot. And then he, he ends up, and he's got no money. He's feeding pigs, longing to, to eat what the pigs are eating because he's so hungry. And he realizes, you know, it'd be better for me to go back and be a slave in my father's house than to keep on living like this. And so he goes home to ask his father's forgiveness. And just listen to the words of how the father responds to him, because I think it's a great picture of God's lavishness. Luke 15, verse 20, and he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, while he was still far away, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That alone is lavish. He doesn't wait till we get to him. He runs to us, throws his arms around us, embraces us, kisses us. It's beautiful. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. God's love is lavish. He not only forgives us, but he grants us an inheritance again. He provides for us. He throws a party in our homecoming. God doesn't offer us a little bit of his love. He offers us an abundance of 2,400 servings of his love and grace and forgiveness, an inheritance that is an eternal treasure. God's love is, is lavish and abundant. It's so much better than the old wine, the old water, right? See, I don't believe that this passage is inviting us to get drunk. I don't think this passage teaches us that Jesus wants to provide wine for his people to get drunk on. 
I, I think this passage is Jesus pointing to the deeper truth of God's lavish love, which is arrived in Jesus' ministry on this earth through his life, death, and resurrection. I think Jesus wants to clue us in to the fact that his hour has not yet come, but his hour is coming. An hour where he will be glorified on the cross and glorify the Father through his sacrifice. And in so doing, we too can receive the better wine, which has been saved for last. See, God saved the best for last. It wasn't Abraham. It wasn't Isaac or Jacob. It wasn't Moses or Joseph. It wasn't David. It wasn't any of the prophets. The better wine is Jesus, in whom we receive an abundance of God's love and grace and forgiveness. And so how do we respond this morning? I think we got to ask the question, do, do we believe this is true? Do we believe that Jesus truly is the better wine, the, the better offering for us that's free to us? Or do we want to keep on striving, thinking, no, what matters most is how well I can perform for God? Do you believe that trusting in Jesus is better than trying to make a go of this life on your own? Are you confident that when your life is measured at the end, when you reach the end of your days, that you'll be measured, you'll be uh, evaluated based on your ability to, to obey the scriptures more so than your ability to receive this this better wine that God offers us in Jesus Christ. See, our passage ends with these words in John chapter 2, verse 11. John tells us this is the first of his signs. Oh, sorry, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. He showed off who he was. He revealed who he was as the Son of Man and the Son of God. And his disciples believed in him. See, the, the, the faith of the disciples grew. It doesn't start here, right? If we, if we read Nathaniel's story, we hear that he believed in the Messiah way, back in chapter 1. But he believed in him here in chapter 2. Their faith grew. They spent time with him. They paid closer attention to him. They, their, their trust in him and, and entrusting themselves to him grew through seeing Jesus do amazing things, but more importantly, understanding who he was more intimately and personally. So can I challenge you with something this morning? Don't get comfortable in your faith. Don't think that because you prayed a prayer a long time ago that everything's all set and you can now sit back and just reap, and, reap the benefits of a relationship with Jesus by just sitting back and doing nothing. Listen to the life of the disciples. Walk beside Jesus. Spend time with him. Read his words. Ask questions about Jesus. He can handle it. Ask your questions of him. Study his life. Pay closer attention to who Jesus was. Uh, love like Jesus. Serve like Jesus. Obey him. See, Jesus invites us to, to follow him. That doesn't mean we, we believe that he's the son of man and the son of God and then we're good. It means we walk with him. We let our faith grow in him as we spend time with him and as we understand who he is. See, faith in Jesus is like that seed, like a mustard seed that, that may be small at first. But over time, that faith is still faith and it grows to become a gigantic tree. See, we've got to look beyond the glitz and the glam of Jesus' miracles. We need to see the true beauty of our Savior who graciously makes all things new in God's 
lavish love. A love that tells us, well done, good and faithful servant. A, a love that's like the, the, the father's where he, he welcomes home the prodigal son, where he runs to him and throws his arms around him. A love that calls us beloved sons and daughters. A love that promises to never leave us nor forsake us. A love that will continue to work in us to carry us on to completion on the day that Jesus returns. See, this is what's available to us in the better wine. This is what's available to us in a life with Jesus. And this is the Jesus who reveals himself at that wedding in Cana in Galilee. When in a moment of panic, they say, what do we do? We ran out of wine. And Jesus offers them something better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do offer us something better in Jesus Christ. But Lord, we all look to the, the practical, the, the material, the things of this world. They are the things that make us anxious. Like, like, the, like running out of wine at a, at a party or, 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 or fearing not having enough or not being enough. And yet, Lord, you, you reveal to us through this story in John chapter 2 that you are enough. That Jesus is the better wine, that nothing else can satisfy. And that the best has been saved for last. Jesus, you are that best. Help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see this truth, the, the, the truth that lies behind the sign. May we embrace it, not just with our minds, but also our hearts and our lives. May we too go forth from here today, trusting Jesus more firmly and, and passionately and following after him, obeying him, trusting that he really is the way and the truth and the life. Lord, may we bask in the glow and the joy of being embraced by you, Lord just like that prodigal son was, as we return home to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.